Welcome to Pirate Living Podcast. We are your hosts, Kristen and Karan. On this podcast, we are highlighting ordinary people living extraordinary lives. These are pirates who take small, bold actions daily to create social change. Pirate life is all about rebelling and breaking the rules for good. Creating lasting social change starts by first breaking our inner rules. After all, the hardest rules to break are your own. The pirates we highlight have dedicated themselves to creating good trouble. Today we're chatting with Dustin Reynolds. Dustin is a true pirate and is the first double amputee to sail around the world alone. Dustin is an environmentalist, a humanist, and an international man of mystery who turned a near-death experience and subsequent difficult recovery into a new and different way of life. So welcome, Dustin. We're excited to talk to you today. Aloha. I'm excited to talk to you. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So Dustin, on June 18th, 2014, you started your literal pirate journey, which took you around the world. We would love to hear what started you on this journey and led you to where you are today. Oh, gosh. So what really started was probably back at the time of my accident. Um, I was hit by a drunk driver on October 18th of 2008, and I lost my left arm and my left foot and nearly my life. And through the process of recovery, uh, it was financially devastating. Um, the person who hit me had insurance and I had insurance, but neither paid enough to go anywhere near what the medical bills were. And so my medical insurance picked up the rest of the tab. But then since the accident wasn't my fault, my insurance declared it wasn't their responsibility to pay. So they stuck about a half a million dollar lien on me. And for about four years after the accident was recovery time, more medical stuff. And eventually I had a reconstructive surgery on my leg and ultimately a bankruptcy to pay off that medical lien. And then I also did an offer and compromise with the IRS because I didn't pay my taxes that first year. And um, so I had to pay that back as well. And right around four years after the accident, I was debt free. And, you know, I was getting stronger. I just had this reconstructive surgery. And, you know, for those first four years, I was just like struggling to like, you know, get to that point. And suddenly I was like, what do I do now? You know, as a, uh, I was debt free, I was physically getting stronger. And I tried, like I had a carpet cleaning business and a fishing boat. And I tried going back to those a little bit, but it was hard. And then also the equipment was four years out of maintenance and um, I had no cash or credit to reinvest in the companies. So, you know, it would have taken me forever to get back to like any sort of financial freedom. And I was like, okay, I was like looking for anything else. And I was a commercial diver for a little bit. And so I tried a few different commercial diving jobs, but I wasn't sure how well I'd be able to do it with one arm. And, um, and then also, you know, I was just looking for anything. And randomly I found a website and people had sailed around the world and set a record. And there's this list of like 80 people, like these 80 different records that were sent. And I was like, well, there's no double amputee on there. I'm going to do that. And so I sold the two businesses. I bought a $12,000 sailboat and started working on learning how to sail. So you didn't know how to sail when you started this journey? No, I had mm -hmm. no sailing experience. So I, uh, I bought the boat. Um, I did a one month trip around the islands with my friend, Brandon, and kind of we taught ourselves how to sail. He didn't know how to sail either. <laughs> and um, I watched a bunch of YouTube videos on how to sail and it's funny because one day Brandon was like going through the TV and he goes on the YouTube channel. He sees this list of uh, 
like instructional YouTube videos on sailing. And he's like, you don't know how to sail, do you? I was like, yeah, I do now. I watch the videos. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. Mm-hmm. I'm curious too on like, because you learned um, after your accident, if that actually gave you an advantage in a way too, because you didn't have one way of knowing it. So you had to learn it from the way that you, like you didn't have to relearn how to do yeah. it. I've had a few other sailors tell me this as well, saying mm-hmm. that had they lost an arm or a leg, knowing how to sail, they don't know if they would have tried to continue doing it or do mm-hmm. something like that by themselves because you learn everything with two hands. Mm-hmm. And so having to relearn it with one would maybe seem like a more difficult thing than just learning it with one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So um, t- can, we, can you tell us a little bit about like the recovery that you had after your accident? And what those like four years were like for you? Yeah. It, uh, so learning to walk on a prosthetic is quite difficult. Um, I had a lot of internal injuries as well. I had a punctured spleen, a punctured lung. I had four broken ribs, a broken scapula. Like my stomach came through my diaphragm and was up in my chest cavity. And I vomited into my lungs. Mm-hmm. And so I was a complete mess when they picked me up. But I only spent about, I spent 10 days in the hospital and then seven days in a rehab facility, like an inpatient rehab. And um, by the time I got out, overall, physically, I was healthy again. It, uh, I'd lost about 20 pounds, um, and, but I didn't have any secondary infections. You know, I was breathing okay. Um, my spleen healed up fine. And, you know, the surgeons did a really good job saving my life. And so really the only thing left was like learning to walk on a prosthetic. And then also dealing with the phantom limb pain, mm-hmm. which uh, the phantom limb pain kind of came once the other pain subsided. And uh, so learning to walk on a prosthetic is, is painful. You know, you're using a, you're putting your body weight on soft tissue mm-hmm. as opposed to like your skeletal structure in your foot. And um, so it took quite a while and there was a lot of ups and downs. It was really frustrating. And after about four years of, you know, going, you know, I would, you know, I'd be able to go for a hike one day, but then the leg would swell up and I'd go two or three days without being able to put the prosthetic on. Mm-hmm. And um, they have this thing called chopsticking where the bones would grind together. Um, Cause you know, the tibia and fibula are kind of held together by your ankle. And without that there, they just kind of move around. And um, so they would sometimes grind together, which was really painful as well. And so the surgery I had bonded the two bones together and then wrapped muscle tissue around the leg mm-hmm. and within like I think it was a I think it was in a wheelchair for six weeks and then after those six weeks when I first put a prosthetic on I was already stronger on that prosthetic than I ever was before that surgery mm-hmm. and so that was one thing that just really made a huge leap mm-hmm. what about like um, your mindset going through all of this because I can imagine there's like you said there's ups and there's downs and like how did you what was like um, I don't know if you want to share like kind of a low point and then how you can build yourself back up um, yeah it was there was some tough moments uh, one of the things when I got out of the hospital um, probably one of the angriest I've been after this whole ordeal was uh, I had blood clots that I got you know have a trauma and then just lay in a hospital bed for 10 days and I had a so I had a few blood clots and they had me on blood thinners to like try to get rid of them 
but they have to monitor your blood, your INR levels. So three times a week, I'd have to go get my blood checked. And in the hospital, they were just doing it. And then they'd adjust my medication based on like what my levels were. Well, when I got out of the hospital, suddenly the insurance issues started popping up. I went to a doctor and he's like, well, because it was an automobile accident and because of the way the laws are here in Hawaii, they call it a no-fault state. We know your insurance probably isn't going to cover it. So you have to pay cash in advance for these. And it was a lie. It was like $200, you know, per blood draw. I needed three a week. I was like, I can't just spend $600 a week getting blood draws. And I, you know, started going to the emergency room to get it done, which was like a 30 minute drive versus a five minute drive from where I was. Mm -hmm. And so, and then I had to sit in the ER and wait for them to actually do it. And the people in the emergency room were really understanding. So they were, you know, really nice about it, but the insurance did end up paying for it, you know? Mm -hmm. So, but the crazy thing is, is after I stopped going to the ER, I called another doctor who became a friend of mine. His name's Darren. And he, I called him. I was like, I'd only seen him once before that, you know, I, I hardly ever go to a doctor Mm -hmm. and I called him. Like I said, Hey, it's like, you know, I don't know what to do. I'm in this really tough situation where I need to get this done and I don't want to go to the ER, but the doctor close to my home is, telling me I can't do it. And um, he said, uh, don't worry, I'll order the test for you. You could still go to that same clinic and get the blood draws, but you know, it'll go through my office instead of his. And he says, I'll just sort it out. Don't worry about it. And he did. And the insurance did pay for it. And they only paid $18 per blood draw. And so they were telling me I had to pay $200 cash for every blood draw mm-hmm. when the insurance only pays 18. Mm-hmm. And you know, I talked to Darren about it. And he says, you know, it's not really their fault. He says, when you sign up, like as a doctor, when you sign up to take an insurance, part of that contract is what other insurance companies you take. And then also like what you charge cash customers. And so the insurance company, when you sign up for them, you know, they bring you business, but then they also kind of dictate your pricing. Mm -hmm. And he said, the reason he was able to circumvent it is he has a, he's a really nice guy. He does house calls like after work. So he'll do his clinic hours and then he goes around doing house calls for 50 bucks for people who don't have insurance. And so he ran it through his house call business instead of his clinic. And he was able to take care of me that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it must be as, as a Canadian, that must be so frustrating that you just, you couldn't just focus on what you need to do to like heal and to get better. Um, that you have all these financial worries like loaded on top of that like bankruptcy and all of that stuff just to yeah have um medical care (laughs) it seems crazy to me as the little (laughs) canadian on this thing like what do you mean (laughs) it it was surprising to me it was a lot more difficult than i thought it was going to be and um i mean there was even a time on the side of the road where i was considering making the 911 call because the person who hit me drove like about another 600 meters from the scene of the accident Mm -hmm. and you know i screamed for help a few times there was no one there and then I, my phone, thankfully, survived the accident. It was in my pocket. So I called 911, and I thought about it for a second. I was like, oh, it's like my arm's mm-hmm. gone. I can't stand up. I was like, this is going to be a horrific recovery process. And, and I was like, do I really want to make the call, or do I just want to lay here for a little bit? And I obviously called. But one of the things that went through my head wasn't how difficult the insurance was going to be. I had health insurance, so I wasn't really that worried about it. And it ended up being a much more difficult process than I thought it would. Mm-hmm. So how, 
what what was your mindset like through all of this recovery? I I mostly just focused on getting better, and um and then the financial difficulties were definitely there. Like my, you know, it took me about a year to get on Social Security disability, and once you go on that, you go on to Medicare, but then there's like I think it was like I think there's a year between being approved for disability and then being able to get onto Medicare. Yeah. And so I had to go about a year without health insurance. And um, that was tough because I still needed prosthetics. And in order to get a prosthetic, you have to get like a doctor's prescription, which is weird. And uh, yeah, and so it, it made it really difficult, but thankfully Darren was there. And um, yeah. also, uh, you know, my prosthetic guy at the time, Ted, he was really helpful as well. And so, the two of them were like really helping me out and you know as far as my mindset like every time like I you know I got in one of these really frustrating situations it seems like somebody stepped up and helped Mm -hmm. so I think if a few of those people did it it would have been really easy for me to kind of go the other direction and maybe not be so positive Mm -hmm. so you you had your crew that were helping you and then you found a goal did that goal also help help you with the recovery um, and building your strength up afterward? So by the time I got the goal to go sail mm-hmm. around the world, it was, uh, I was already getting pretty strong. And mm-hmm. um, I, uh, it was about two years before sailing that I came up with the idea. And so I started working, driving a taxi to make extra money. And then, uh, yeah, so I drove a taxi as probably, and I was still cleaning carpets. Um, so I was doing that on the side and trying to keep that business going. And I did that for about a year, and then I sold the business, and then bought the bought the uh, sailboat. Then did another year driving the taxi and fixing up the sailboat, and uh, and then I took off. And this was solo, correct? It's like you went went on your own for your first big sailing voyage. Yeah, so I did that one month trip around the islands with my friend Brandon, and then we spent like about a month fixing up the boat after we got back. And then my very first time sailing alone was leaving for my trip. So it was a thousand mile trip to Palmyra. It was the first time I'd even, I'd even been to sea by myself. Wow. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, why don't you share with us some of like mm-hmm. the best stories that you've kind of accumulated throughout? First of all, how long did, did the journey take you? Seven and a half years. Yeah. So seven and a half years, about 30, 35,000 miles at sea, 36 countries. Wow. Um, yeah, and so a lot. when we're, we're recording this, it's January and you've just returned home last month, right? Yep. Yeah. Amazing. Um, so yeah, what, what share with us some of the, like the really cool stories or oh, um, <laughs> like some of the times where maybe you were um, like, thinking what the hell have I done over? <laughs> <laughs> um, there was a, so just when I first bought the boat, I had a kind of a moment with both of those. I, mm-hmm. you know, cause I just basically spent everything that I had and planning for this trip. And I flew to Oahu and got the boat. And then the previous owner sailed it with me back to the big Island. Mm-hmm. And I'd been up all night driving the taxi. So I was dead tired. I, I was up all night I jumped on a plane flew over we got on the boat pulled anchor and left and we get into the Kaivi channel between uh Oahu and Molokai and between the channels and all the islands of Hawaii it's they're all really rough it's rough sailing and um 
it's rough it's pouring rain there's a big squall through there's a bunch of shipping traffic around that you can't even see because it's so dark with the rain and I'm just like oh what did I just do you know I'm just like this sucks I hate sailing already it's only been like 10 minutes um, so Jonas was the previous owner and he said that uh he's like you know what just go rack out he said uh I know you're tired and um I'll take care of this and I'll wake you up when I get tired I was like okay so I went down below fell asleep and then um you know he hollers at me a few hours later and it's dark and we're in the lee of uh molokai and lanai at this time so it's really calm and the stars were out and bioluminescence were in the water and you know he goes down and sleeps and you know the wind vane it's like the mechanical autopilot was working really well and we we're just like gliding through like this sea of stars and bioluminescence and i was like okay yeah this i could do this <laughs> it was like <laughs> like within like three hours i went from like oh man to like, <laughs> okay this this will work <laughs> Yeah, so we let you sleep through the worst and then woke you up mm-hmm. to see like what, how it could be, how it will be. Yeah, yep, exactly. Um, so out of the, did you say 36 countries? Yeah, I think so. Um, what was like, so did you have, do you have a favorite? Not a favorite. Um, it, a lot of it became kind of similar you know there's different cultures and languages but then like if you spend seven years in different cultures and languages it like kind of blends together a little bit yeah um I loved Vanuatu um that was one of my so I did like uh Kiribati, Samoa, Tonga, Fiji, uh, Sol- uh Vanuatu and then Solomon Islands and Papua New Guinea and um in Vanuatu, there's like three live volcanoes. Um, the diving is spectacular. So in all three volcanoes, you could hike to. Um, they have those land divers, you know, the ones that tie like the bungee cord, bungee vines to their feet and jump off these platforms. Um, all the different islands had like kind of unique cultures. And um, mm-hmm. they have like a chief system there. So each island has a chief and the chiefs would get together for meetings and how to better organize their islands and so they're all really well organized and it uh just a beautiful people and really kind mm-hmm. and yeah I loved it there was a one island Uraparapara that I stayed at for maybe just like two weeks and um it was uh it looks cool it looks like a like on the map it looks like a sea and it was a volcano where the whole side of the volcano blew out mm-hmm. so when you come in you anchor like really dead center in the volcano and there's just like mountains like completely surrounding you and uh really neat anchorage and um and then as soon as I dropped anchor the chief paddles out on his canoe and bites me to the island and you know all the kids are following me around and he loved spaghetti like <laughs> it was like his thing so I had a bunch of spaghetti on the boat and I gave him some and then he invites me for dinner and then like just before I left I was like okay well I'm gonna go to Australia pretty soon I could stock up on spaghetti so I left him like everything that I had and like the thought of him saving it for later just didn't even compute he just invited like the whole village over for spaghetti dinner <laughs> so everyone got together and had spaghetti and it was so sweet is there was there any place that you went that surprised you either like good or bad just like that was just kind of shocking um the solomon islands were uh sailors i mean this happens a lot uh because like anecdotal stuff you know makes people scared and so a lot of times there'll be like one act of piracy or one act of violence and you know people stop going to like the whole country even though it only happened once and so it's 
like there's more acts of violence and stuff in Canada and the US and there is in most of these places. And um, when I went to the Solomons, like I had heard that it was dangerous and, um, and I just like, okay, yeah, everyone says that, but it's probably fine. And the first stop I had, you know, the people were really nice. They came out and traded with me, but they were like, you know, you gotta be careful here. They said that uh, there was this thing called the ethnic tension. And um, basically where the Solomon Islanders got tired of, you know, you know, they had this thing where the hotels would come in, they'd move them from the beaches to like this terrible part of the island and like a little shanty town. They'd pay them $5 a day to work 10 hour shifts at the hotel. And, uh, you know, still the hotels are still charging Western rates too. So they're making quite a bit of money. And eventually Solomon and Islanders got sick of it. They burned down the hotels and kicked out the whiteies and they're like, okay, we're done with this. You know, we're not mm -hmm. doing this anymore. And they called the ethnic tension where like basically the whole country came up and says, no, we're not being exploited in this way. I think the Fijians should do this as well, by the way. <laughs> but when I was there, you know, it was the first time where, you know, I wasn't getting this complete warm welcome. Mm -hmm. And, um, and I got boarded twice by, you know, people, pirates in the Solomon Islands trying to steal stuff off the boat. And mm -hmm. both times I was able to scare them off. I told them I had a gun and they jumped in the water and then back onto their canoes and then try to pretend that they weren't trying to steal from me <laughs> but it uh but uh you know they didn't have weapons on them you know they weren't trying to hurt me mm -hmm. so you did have run-ins with actual pirates i did yep <laughs> was that the only time or were there other times it, yeah that was the only time it, uh, it happened twice in the course of like three days on two different mm -hmm. islands and then after that i left i was like you know like i said neither time they were they weren't armed you know they weren't like trying to hurt me they uh so it was more or less, they were just trying to steal stuff off the boat. And if I was, if I were to go back, I think if I had a crew, like maybe three or four people, like I would comfortably go back there. And just because you just need someone to scare them off. That's up on shift or whatever. Like they're mm -hmm. like, so they're not coming like armed with machetes and guns or anything. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, they're just, they're just being opportunistic. And, but yeah, since then, it's common for fishing boats at sea to approach you. And um, like, so you'll see a boat out at sea and suddenly like it'll come straight for you, which could be scary. And the fishermen are always wearing those masks too, like the, those neck gaiters, mm. you know, for sun protection, you know, they're not like pirates trying to cover their face. And I've seen a lot of uh, like stories and sailing magazines about their experience with pirates and like and they're talking about their sailboat like outrunning the fishing boat i was like yeah you didn't outrun them they just realized that you were scared and stopped chasing you know? <laughs> you know? it's like it's like and when usually when they come up they'll come up and i'm always nervous but then they'll stop and pull down the mask and smile and be like hey do you have cigarettes do you have alcohol you know <laughs> throw them a few packs of cigarettes or a bottle of rum and they'll throw you a few fish and carry on <laughs> that's cool it's one way to do it mm -hmm. uh how, when you were um, going to different places, did you have a way of connecting with the people before you got there or did you meet them after you made it to the next location? So generally, I would say maybe half of the countries you have to contact in advance and do some mm -hmm. sort of paperwork before arriving. Okay. And there's a website called noonsite.com that, uh, you could go on noon site and it has all the regulations and email addresses and 
whatever you need to enter all these countries. And so you go to noon site first, read what the regulations are. And then if you have to do something in advance, you'll reach out to the country and say, okay, I'm coming approximately this date. And, but mm -hmm. you'll need to do that from internet from wherever you are first. And mm -hmm. I don't have internet while I'm at sea. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh. Did you, oh, <laughs> no, go ahead. <laughs> I was going to ask, because um, I'd talked with you through Instagram a little bit as well. So did you have any issues like with getting prepared for going to the next place sometimes because of like spotty internet where you were, or was it usually pretty smooth? It was usually pretty smooth. The only time I had any problems checking into a country was in Kiribati. And I went from uh, Palmyra to Fanning Island and they had this rule that they put in that if you don't have a clearance form from the US, you have to pay a $500 fine. Mm. Well, the US doesn't require you to clear out. And so getting a clearance form from the US is actually quite difficult. And um, it was just something these corrupt officials decided they were just gonna get 500 bucks for everyone coming from America. And uh, I went there, I didn't have $500 on the boat. And it was really sad too, because I really w wanted to go to this place. Mm -hmm. And um, before leaving Hawaii, because they had, were affected by a tsunami like a year mm -hmm. or two before I got there. And I brought all these clothes and medical supplies. And, you know, my doctor donated a bunch of medical supplies. And my whole V-birth, like I had no room to even sleep on the boat because it was just loaded up with clothes from the Goodwill I was going to give away. And I'm just like, I got all this stuff for you guys. It's worth way more than $500. And it's like, just let me, you know, drop it off, go to shore. He's like, nope, $500, mm -hmm. you got to go. It's like, all right. And so mm -hmm. I ended up giving it away in Nui Tapatopo and Tonga. <laughs> but, but I ended up having all that stuff on my boat for like three months and nowhere to sleep. Mm -hmm. <laughs> what were some of the like greatest lessons that you learned through your travels? Oh, gosh. Um, I think... One is just how safe the world is for the most part. Um, in the 36 countries I've been to, the only acts of piracy against me were those two times in the Solomon Islands. I've never had anything stolen. The boat has always been unlocked. Um, I, I don't think I even saw an act of violence in seven and a half years. Um, I never saw someone get robbed. I don't have any friends that got robbed. Or There's been a few dinghies stolen in the Caribbean. You know, that's like where the crime kind of started again. But in Southeast Asia, you know, even in Africa, the uh, South Africa has quite a bit of crime. But Madagascar and Mozambique, there was it was completely safe, and all the people were extremely welcoming. You know, it's it's easy to see on the media now, and people get so polarizing about stuff. And like I went to Muslim islands, and they just completely accepted me. They don't they didn't want to convert me or anything. They'd bring me to their families and tea and biscuits and. You know, and everywhere I went was like that. Not once was there any judgment or conversion or anything. There were just people loving each other and being nice. And it, uh, and most islands are like that, and at least the ones that I experienced. So from when you left Hawaii and then those seven years you were gone, uh, now you're back. Like the world's changed a lot in that time <laughs> as well, and you've changed. So what... How would you compare yourself um, before you left to how you are now after your journey? Well, I turned into a much better sailor. <laughs> <laughs> I knew nothing about sailing really when I left. Uh, <laughs> I've, uh, I, yeah, I've learned a new skill set. And um, yeah, gosh, uh, I was always kind of a positive person, but 
I think spending this much time being and being able to accept help from people was something I was always difficult with. And like once I started the crowdfunding, you know, because crowdfunding paid for the last five years of my trip. Mm-hmm. And um, and it was always really hard for me to even like post it, you know, because I felt like I was begging. And getting over that was really tough. And like learning that I was actually providing something for others, you know, and being able to share my story. And, you know, I have a blog that I keep up. And so I have ways of giving back to the people that are financially helping me. And yeah, I think that's probably the biggest lesson I learned was that being able to accept the money and then provide something in return and not seeing it as just a one-sided thing. What's um like what are some of the more like uncomfortable questions that you had to ask yourself um throughout this journey? Like things that um yeah, something that maybe like you needed to really sit down and have a chat with yourself about um in order to keep going. Uh the crowdfunding was probably the biggest one. Mm-hmm. Um when I got to so I got towed back into Bali like three or four times. And um, the boat was a wreck. I was out of money, you know, I was borrowing money from people and um, with no way to really pay them back. And, um, you know, and I kept having these big catastrophic failures trying to leave Bali. And it was only like, I was getting like five miles from the harbor and having a huge problem getting towed back in and then putting a bandaid on it and trying to go back out to sea. And the boat was dangerous, you know, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't really seaworthy as it needed to be for these trips. And once I got to Thailand, I came, when I got into Krabby Harbor, the, uh, the boat was taking on water. So I had to haul the boat out, you know, and I had to pump it like three or four times a day to try to get the water out. And um, I didn't have the money for the haul out, but then I couldn't just let the boat sink either. So I just hauled out the boat. And my girlfriend at the time was one that convinced me to do the crowdfunding. But the scariest part of it was like, if I raised enough money to feel obligated to continue, but not really enough money to fix up the boat the way it needed to be fixed up. Like I didn't want to, I was so tired of being in this like perpetual, like going to another place, fixing the boat, it not really being ready to go or being safe and then continuing on. And I didn't want to continue my trip on a boat that was unsafe and keep having these struggles. And thankfully I raced enough to buy a different boat and I've raised enough since then to keep it going really nicely. And so it turned out really good, but it was really scary to make that commitment and, you know, accept money from people to do something that now I have to do it or feel obligated <laughs> to do it. Mm-hmm. So you, you ended up buying another boat? Mm-hmm. Mm. So this is not the original one. Nope. The original boat is Rudis. And mm. Rudis is a 1968 Alberg that is now sunken in Thailand. <laughs> that wasn't my fault or the boat's fault. The The new owner of the boat was really neglectful. So. Mm. And so what is the name? We already talked about this, but what's the name of your <laughs> boat now? <laughs> Crazy enough, Rudis. Uh, so this boat is Tiama. Rudis was the wooden practice sword that the gladiators used. Mm-hmm. And if a gladiator ever won his freedom, he was given a Rudis. So a Rudis was like the symbol that he was a free person. Mm-hmm. And um, 
and it was cool that this boat was actually called Tiyama, which meant freedom in Polynesian. And so, and that was just by chance. It, like, I, I didn't rename the boat. That's cool. That's a, that's a cool correlation too. Like yeah. you're given Rudis for freedom and then your next boat is freedom. Yeah. <laughs> it was freedom from Rudis. Yeah. Rudis was a little worried. <laughs> 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 so many levels of the name. <laughs> And so actually we'll talk a little bit about that, about like the freedom of like the change in your lifestyle and that freedom that sailing around the world has, has brought to you and how that's changed your outlook on, on, on life. Yeah, it's so sailing is an amazing thing, an amazing feeling like in the world that we live in now, like everything's got controls and bureaucracy and driver's licenses and DMV and all this stuff that you have to go through strangely enough you don't really have that with sailing like almost anyone could just buy a boat and sail to another country off of you like learning off of youtube you know <laughs> it uh it doesn't seem like something you should be allowed to do and <laughs> for me like do, being able to do it by myself i mean that was just an amazing feeling it uh being able to just i mean it even became routine after a while where i'd pull anchor clean the bottom of the boat go to sea and then show up in a new country and do my paperwork and just be there for a while. Mm -hmm. And I got to spend enough time in all these places to really get to know the locals and the customs and spend like real time with people. And it's just amazing. It's this amazing thing that's out there that so few people ever do. Like the mm -hmm. sailing community, especially for the international sailors is incredibly small. And it, it's pretty available to everybody I mean, my first boat was twelve thousand dollars you know most people's cars cost more than double that and uh and i was able to live on it for two and a half years and sail a third of the way around the world on that twelve thousand dollar boat mm -hmm. so how like what's um just on the topic of freedom like what's next for you now that you've returned home how how do you see yourself continuing that uh free lifestyle uh so, going on my goal is if I could choose my own adventure is uh, I'm trying to get into public speaking. So mm -hmm. I'm doing a few speeches here in Hawaii in the next couple of weeks that I'm going to record and I'm going to try to put together a highlight reel. And I have an agent in New York that I'm talking to. Nice. So I'm hoping to do public speaking for money for, you know, two, three months a year. I'd like to join like an environmental project or research project for a few months and then spend a few months like, trying to promote those things uh like i maybe spend some time in new york and talking about some of the problems that i've seen and try to come up with ways to fix it um there's a, a madagascar is one of the huge places that i absolutely loved and there's a few like really horrifying things happening there there's a horrible uh sex trade with a. Uh, I mean there's still slavers going to madagascar on boats taking women young girls i shouldn't should say not women and they end up in the middle east or somewhere and uh, with no passports no way to get home and there's signs up all over it and when i first arrived in madagascar i mean usually when i show up with one arm and one leg you know all the kids run up to you they paddle out to your boat and they didn't in madagascar and i was really surprised by this and you know i go walk through the villages they weren't really like coming up to me and, you know, in Madagascar, they speak Malagasy and French. So there was a language barrier there for me as well. 
and eventually someone who spoke English came up and talked to me and said, Hey, you know, just be careful when you're here. There's when they see people on boats, they don't know if you're a slaver or not. And, um, and they said, one of the things you should never do is don't start taking pictures right away of everybody because they're thinking that you're taking orders or something. And I'm just like, Oh, this is horrifying. Mm -hmm. And, um, and I think it like, especially now, like Elon Musk, if you're listening to this, if, <laughs> if you could put like a Starlink, like satellite internet thing on these islands and a camera, you know, it, it, that's all it would really take. Like if they could just like film people coming in, have communication, because there's no communication out there on those outer islands. I mean, it's something that's solvable and mm -hmm. it, uh, and I don't think it would be very expensive. And they have a horrible deforestation problem there as well. Like the baobab trees and forests are being cut down. And it's mostly just for cooking fuel. You know, it's not being done by these big evil corporations. The locals are doing it and just for cooking their food. And it's because that process of taking down a tree, turning it into charcoal and selling it is cheaper for them than like cooking gas. And I mean, if they could just get cheap fuel or cheap electricity for cooking, I mean, you could save the forest there as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, wasn't that similar like in Haiti, um, the deforestation in Haiti versus like Dominican Republic? Um, uh, like uh, Haiti has had like a huge deforestation issue um, and it, it got to the point in the Dominican Republic and I can't remember the, um, the, the leader's name at the time, but he was like a horrible, horrible dictator, but, it, but <laughs> he was an environmentalist as well in that like, it was like punishable by death in the Dominican Republic to, to like chop down a tree to use that to make charcoal to heat your home because they saw that what was happening in Haiti. Um, so yeah, it's it's wow. it's, it's uh, just something that came to mind that I read like a million years ago and I probably got completely wrong. <laughs> Sadly, I missed both of those places. Um, yeah. Haiti was pretty dangerous, and so I didn't stop there. Mm -hmm. um, I was planning on stopping in Dominican Republic, but when I got to the U.S. Virgin Islands, COVID shut everything down. Mm -hmm. And so I sailed straight up to the Northeast United States <clears throat> and back down to the Bahamas. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, I would have liked to stop in DR. Um, but probably, I mean, it sounds, sounds about like what's happening in Madagascar. So I wouldn't be surprised. Mm -hmm. How, um, I mean, other than... Oh, yeah, how did COVID mm -hmm. change things for you? <laughs> so for me, um, I was kind of a bit lucky. Uh, I lost one of my prosthetics overboard. Mm -hmm. And so I stopped in the U.S. Virgin Islands and booked a ticket to San Francisco. And um, like I was only planning on stopping in the U.S. Virgin Islands for like a week. And I was going to continue on to DR and then Panama. And uh I got to the U.S. Virgin Islands and I'd lost a leg. So I found a place for the boat, booked a flight, and then I flew to San Francisco and back. And by the time I got back, everything kind of started shutting down. And so I was like, okay, maybe I'll just wait and see what's going to happen. And then everything seriously shut down like a month later. And, you know, the hurricane season was coming. And luckily for me, um, Andy from Bristol Marine, like sent me this message when I was back in Martinique and he said, he had heard about my story and said, if I sailed up to Rhode Island where my boat was made, he said they would fix up the boat for free and mm. for, for me to continue my trip. 
and you know i thanked him but i was like you know i'm almost home and i said you know i'm just i smell the finish line i'm gonna keep going and uh and it was way out of the way and but then when COVID shut everything down i called him back and i said hey you know i know the world's upside down right now but is your offer still good he's like yeah he's like come on up so i sailed up to rhode island and you know they spent you know about a month fixing up my boat for me which is amazing and mm -hmm. uh so the boat got even in better shape and then uh and then i was able to sail down through new york which was awesome and like i got to new york after like the horrible lockdowns and you know when they got hit really hard and you know everything was starting to open when i got in so i was able to sail you know down long island sound and up the east river and i anchored right next to the statue of liberty and i spent my first night there and then brooklyn marina sponsored me a spot for a couple of months so i got to spend two months cruising around new york city and it was just really amazing and new york at that time like the subways were pretty empty so you could subway everywhere and it wasn't too crowded and all the museums were just opening so all the museums were like at 15 or 30 percent capacity and yeah it was like having new york city all to myself and it was a really nice experience and then bahamas as well like i sailed down to bahamas and they were empty with tourism and so you know, I got to experience that, like probably how it was, you know, 50 years ago. Mm -hmm. And, but it, it got lonely too, because, uh, you know, with all the lockdowns and like, usually when I sail somewhere, you know, I go to a local bar and meet people and go adventure together. And during COVID, like that just wasn't happening. And yeah. so it was starting to get, it was starting to wear on me just being alone all the time. Mm -hmm. Did you, um, while you were over there on that kind of East Coast area, uh, did you make it to Bermuda? I ask as a Bermudian if you made it to I, my I've, island. <laughs> I've stopped in Bermuda on a yacht delivery. Okay. Um, I didn't, so I was planning on stopping when I left from the U.S. Virgin Islands, but uh, Hurricane Arthur, like, like just missed me. And it, like <laughs> it went, it went over Bermuda. And so like, if you look at my track around Bermuda, it looks like I was like, don't like Bermuda because I had this like avoidance thing around it <laughs> but it was because of hurricane arthur it wasn't because of bermuda but yeah, so i had some, i had a few days of bad weather because of that but mm. the uh the time i did stop on the yacht delivery i really liked it cool you weren't avoiding the bermuda triangle right. you were just <laughs> avoiding oh, the hurricane <laughs> it's funny i went through the bermuda triangle i think six times in the last couple of years because mm. i did like three yacht deliveries back and forth and then I took my own boat back and forth and so the Bermuda Triangle isn't as crazy as you think it is as a kid <laughs> yeah <laughs> like, like, I was like stories. yeah you know I learned quicksand really isn't that big of a deal either <laughs> <laughs> right like these things like we, yeah. we I thought growing up would be a much bigger problem than, than yeah. they really are yeah <laughs> I have experienced enough hot lava in Hawaii so the hot lava thing's real <laughs> the, the, quicksand, yeah, the quicksand and Bermuda Triangle is not really a big issue. <laughs> yeah, easily avoidable. Um, yeah, I mean, you've taken a lot of uh, bold actions to get you to where you are right now. Um, obviously, buying a boat and sailing around the world without any sailing experience is a very bold action um what uh bold actions are you looking to take um here going forward well for me public speaking is a lot scarier than sailing <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, 
I, uh, that's the one that I'm really kind of challenging myself with now. So I'm writing a few speeches and I'm going to practice, like I'm doing a venue here on the 27th and then another one on the 30th. And, uh, so I'm doing two different speeches. I talked to some kids like at the local high school about a week or two ago. And so I'm trying to figure out what I want to say and then forcing myself to get in front of people and say it. Um, I did a speech in South Africa that I stayed an extra day there to do it because it paid really well. And so I overstayed my visa by one day and uh, I gave the speech and I literally gave the speech, got a ride to the harbor, untied the boat and went straight to sea. And at the end of my speech, the people were like, oh, are you nervous to go to sea right now? And it's like the 1700 mile trip to uh, St. Helena from there. I was like, I'm honestly so thankful that this speech is over. <laughs> like, it's like a huge weight lifted off my shoulders. It's like, I'll be fine at sea. <laughs> Yeah, did you YouTube how to public speak? <laughs> yeah, I've, I've been watching a lot of speakers on YouTube and comedians as well. Like I like the way the comedians like structure their specials. Mm -hmm. And so I'm going to try to structure my speeches in a similar way. Mm -hmm. What is the like overall message that you're planning to give with your speeches? So one of them is just on resilience. Um, mostly that you know, and this is like the decision I made on the side of the road, you know, where I was like contemplating whether or not to live or die. Like, you'll never know, like, where your life's going to go. You'll never know, like, the ups and the downs. And, you know, so if you just keep going, things could always get better. Um, for me, at least, like, I didn't foresee, like, the insurance problems being as tough as they were. But then I also didn't foresee sailing around the world by myself and mm -hmm. having all these new opportunities and adventure and meeting wonderful people. And so I guess the message I want to give on that speech is just, you know, if you keep going, it could always get better. Mm -hmm. and you never know what's going to actually happen. Mm -hmm. and, and also just doing something big if you want to. Like the time and effort I put into this trip, you know, turned out to really be worth it. And um, it was, I mean, it was definitely tough for a long time. And I mean, the two years that I was really working towards this, like I had no life. I was working six days a week, you know, probably 70 hours a week and and then trying to main, get the boat maintained and learn how to sail and all that stuff mm -hmm. too. And and I was doing it all conceptually. Like I didn't even have time to go out sailing. Like I didn't do any day trips in Hawaii. Like mm -hmm. I was just watching videos and then did a one month trip around Hawaii to like learn it practically. But mm -hmm. um. How did your view change, like, uh, or maybe, uh, like, how, yeah, on, and, like, the environmentalist side of things, like, were you always kind of uh, an environmentalist, or is the things that you've seen, like, such as, like, the deforestation in Madagascar and stuff, change um, your view in the environment? It's, I mean, seeing it firsthand, like, seeing it on TV is definitely different than seeing it firsthand. Um, and then also seeing, um, I mean, the amount of plastics, and this is even a problem in Hawaii right now. Hawaii stopped recycling because we were literally throwing all of our recycling into cargo containers, sending them to China, and now China's not taking them anymore. But it's like, why are they sending plastic to Hawaii still if we have nothing to do with it? This is just such an irresponsible thing. And it's like, there should be some sort of rule. If there's no plastic recycling, there's no plastic. You know, because it's just ending up either in the ocean or in a landfill or somewhere, and it's going to have to be dealt with later. But we're literally just passing it on to the next generation, and it's really irresponsible. And 
with a lot of this stuff, the deforestation in Sumatra and uh, Borneo, you know, it's just for palm oil, you know, and this is a consumer issue where we have all these products with palm oil in them with this, and they're burning down all the forests, the orangutan habitats are disappearing. And, you know, just for palm oil, like this stupid thing that we don't even really need, you know, it's, uh, it, yeah, so some of the stuff is just, it's just so irresponsible and, and not that, I mean, we lived without plastic until about 50 years ago. We don't need it. We could still refill glass containers and, it, you know, glass, it's made out of sand. So you could go right back in the ocean with no problem. Mm -hmm. that is, that's a question too. Like, how do you, how do you stop that? Because even on the individual level, if I were to say, I'm going to stop all plastic use, there's still like the consumerism of, of the country and the government and all of that. They're still going to produce the plastic because we make things like bottled water you have to throw that out mm -hmm. after a year because the not because of the water but because of the plastic so it's yeah. a self-perpetuating cycle how do you yeah how, how do yeah, we stop that? <laughs> that that would have to be done with legislation unfortunately. Yeah. like uh because yeah it, there needs to be i mean i don't know if it'd even be like a u.n issue because it's not mm -hmm. just a united states thing like the plastic consumption in the united states is probably better than most countries um especially in Southeast Asia, Southeast Asia, everything's in plastic. Mm -hmm. But the, yeah, the thing is, it's like there needs to be something international where we're like, okay, we're not going to just keep dumping this stuff. We need to, it's a harmful material and it needs to be dealt with properly. And, mm -hmm. you know, just, I think, because this happened in uh, Kiribati, like the cruise ship companies went in there for a little while because of a tax <laughs> avoidance thing where, you know, this law came in place where the cruise ship companies had to go to their home port every year, you know, and so all these Hawaii cruise ships were all registered in Kiribati. And, um, and eventually, so instead of them like paying taxes, they built a harbor in this, on Fanning Island, you know, dredged it out so the cruise ships could go in there once a year. And, you know, they built a store and they brought in sodas and plastic and all this stuff. And when they left, now Kiribati is covered in plastic from these cruise ship companies and they have nothing to do with it. You know, it's a, you know, the only option really is to burn it, which puts it up in the atmosphere, which isn't that great either. And so it, uh, yeah, there just needs to be something where we need to just try to leave things better than we found them. Mm -hmm. You know, our moms would be disappointed, you know, we're leaving <laughs> a mess behind us. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So you, the single handed sailor, um, your website, is that, um, can you tell us about that? Are you using that for like the crowdsourcing? Is there something new you're doing with that? Let us. So it's going to change up a bit soon because it's still mm -hmm. based on my trip around the world. And so I'm going to kind of rebrand it towards like public speaking and environmental projects. So I'll probably pick an environmental project or two that I want to kind of get behind. And so I'll have those up on there and then I'm going to do a public speaking reel. So these speeches I'm doing locally now, I'm filming them and then I'm going to try to put a highlight reel together and put up there and then hopefully advertise for paid public speaking stuff. Mm. And yeah, so that's, it will be rebranded soon, but right now it's still towards my sailing trip and crowdfunding mm. and, and I have a blog on there that I'll probably maintain as well. I'm, I'll probably have a new one up in a couple of days. And... Where's your next speaking gig? Um, <laughs> Willie's hot chicken on the 27th at uh 
excuse me it's a local restaurant and bar uh really popular place so it's owned by some friends that i have and they were bartenders here before i left and mm -hmm. now they have families and they started their own restaurant and it's doing amazing and uh so we're gonna get all my friends together and hopefully a few other people and i'll i'll play my single-handed film that's on my website so there's a short mm -hmm. eight minute film and then I'll do maybe a 40 minute speech and then a Q and A. Mm -hmm. um, go ahead, Kron. Where, where, <laughs> else, where else can our listeners go to find out more about you? Uh, well, mostly I have most of my media stuff on the website. I mean, it's a little bit behind now because I have updated it in, I don't know, six months or something. But the, uh, yeah, the website's probably the best place. Um, all the, I mean, if you Google my name, all the media stuff will pop up. Like, even if I try to send something to somebody, I end up Googling myself to find it. Yeah. <laughs> I, uh, I will eventually get all those on the website, though. How, how would you recommend our listeners start their own pirate journey in life, whether, whether it's sailing advice or regular <laughs> life advice, either one <laughs> or both? <laughs> Oh gosh, just care about something, care about people. And, and uh, if you see something that needs to be changed, try to figure out how to do it. And I, I still haven't figured out how to do all the things I want to do, but it's, I'm working on it. And, uh, and sailing around the world gave me a platform, you know, and so it, uh, it's something where it gave, you know, made people kind of learn who I was and gave me a platform to speak from. So hopefully I could take that platform and turn it into something good. Mm -hmm. and, if somebody else wants to be a pirate and do the same, uh, there's a path to that. Mm -hmm. Go hop um, on YouTube. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There, yeah, there's probably a YouTube instructional video too. <laughs> <laughs> um, so our last question, our most important question, do you know any pirate jokes? Oh, gosh. I, <laughs> I, I don't think I know any good ones. If we say um, good, we didn't mean good. We didn't, we didn't specify it has to be good. No. Um, so, why couldn't the pirate go to the movie? Because it was rated R. <laughs> I don't think we've had that one, have we? <laughs> no, no. Um, it's great. We always appreciate when someone brings a joke. Well, this has been uh, really cool talking to you and hearing some of your stories and your travels. And I'm sure we could have talked about like, well, 36 countries, we probably could have covered like another 36 hours of, uh, of your adventures. But, but thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you so much for having me. This was really fun. Thank you for listening to this episode. We hope you enjoyed it. If you did, subscribe and share with your friends. You can also find us on Instagram at Pirate Living Podcast to keep up with the latest episodes, awesome guests, and bonus clips. Hop in and say hi. We love chatting with fellow pirates. You can also reach out to us to learn more about our individual and group coaching programs. And keep creating good trouble. <laughs>